So before the end of the first century, Clement of Rome, expressing a belief in the early return of Christ. Yep. AD 100, the Didache, meaning the teaching of the 12 apostles, stressing the need for watchfulness yeah. in light of Christ's soon return. Irenaeus, disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, teaches that the Antichrist reign and the Great Tribulation is going to be followed by the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And the only opponents to that view were the early heretics, the proto-charismatics, and, and the Gnostics and, and others. Um, who did not believe that. So yeah. so where does it start? Well, it starts in the Bible. Yeah. And you see that immediately following the generation of the apostles. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series, devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. LFBI holds to a dispensational framework of biblical exegesis. And, and so for those of you who are paying attention to, to LFBI and, and to the postscript, you know we've talked about this subject before. A dispensationalist views the biblical record in terms of eras in which God deals with humanity in different ways. And, and we believe that this idea of dispensationalism and this, this view of stewardship over eras is imprinted on the very narrative of Scripture. It is LFBI's position that dispensationalism is the only theological system that allows for a consistently literal hermeneutic. We think it's the most scientific approach to the Bible that allows us to, to not go down the rabbit trail of allegory or metaphor in scripture. We can take it literally when we understand it in these terms. Now, dispensationalism is not without its naysayers. Uh, one of the most common critiques of dispensational theology is that its formalization in terms of how it was captured and recorded and understood in academia is a fairly uh, new, uh, relatively new uh, idea. It's, it's new to the theological scene, if you will. Therefore, in their minds, making it invalid. These kinds of red herrings not only distract from real intellectual discourse, but are also historically inaccurate. The question for today's episode is, can we find elements of dispensational theology throughout the ages and in the early church? Or is it simply a theological invention of the Enlightenment and the Victorian age? Is this something that just recently in the modern era has, has risen out of um, some sort of divergent uh, theological view? Now, for this conversation, we have invited Pastor Alan Shelby, who is also the Dean of the Living Faith Bible Institute and a faculty professor of the theology department here and uh, he is going to help us with this conversation, help us to get our minds around this topic. And so with that, Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's begin uh, today by just identifying some of the major tenets of dispensational theology. So what are the major, major doctrines that arise when one adheres to this approach to the Bible? What are kind of the landmark positions that come with dispensationalism? You know, if I were to back up just one step to, sure. to lead us into that, yeah. I would say, okay, here's, here's what you do. Uh, every day this next week, 
I want you to read one chapter at random. And on Monday, it has to be about George Washington. And on Tuesday, it has to be about uh, George Patton. <laughs> and on Wednesday, it has to be Norman Schwarzkopf. And on Thursday, it has to be Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. And you're only, you only at random pick one chapter out of each of the lives of those generals, and you read that, and then I want you to put that into one, you know, I want you to see that all together. You know, that is why we are so messed up in evangelicalism, because the, the way that scholars look at the Bible today is exactly that way. Mm. There's, there is no sense of what God did differently from the, uh, you know, if I could frame it this way, from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War to World War I to World War II. And they tried to read it like it's all the same. And, you know, so they automatically get off on the wrong foot from the very beginning. Because I'm going to say that really what dispensationalism is, God wants you to recognize you cannot understand your Bible if you're not going to rightly divide it, mm -hmm. like he tells you to do in 2 Timothy 2.15. Yeah. So unless you understand dividing it into those segments, which we commonly call dispensations, then you're not going to understand your Bible. So really, it's it, it, dispensationalism is a way of interpreting Scripture. It is interpreting Scripture with the correct hermeneutic or the correct presuppositions up front, and then reading it in that way and going through it and pulling out of it the truth that is applicable to you because mm -hmm. it's written to you, mm -hmm. and knowing how to um, how to evaluate everything else that is written to other people and what God is doing with them. Yeah. So really, it's it, it's not even a theology as much as it is a method of interpreting the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, which results in a literal interpretation, which in, results in a premillennial view of prophecy. It results in seeing a pre-tribulation rapture. It results in Israel and the church staying distinct throughout time. So you have Jew, Gentile, and church, uh, including at the last days, including in the millennium, and on into, uh, into eternity. Yeah, and so dispensationalism allows us to synthesize Scripture without conflating it. We don't yeah. get lost in the weeds. Without and we don't... combining stuff from different areas. And, right. Oh, well, you know what? Yeah. So we exactly. can have a narrative, and we know where we fit within the narrative, where people with other theological approaches um, get stuck knowing where they exist. They don't really know. They, they can't pinpoint where, how, how their time, our yeah. time frame in which we live, in which we're Christians, is any different than... Uh, that of other believers in other times. Yeah, exactly. I think that I think some Christians today got stuck in the second dispensation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't, mm -hmm. you know, they don't even know. So they, as they read through the Bible, they pick and choose what they think might be for them, and then the different denominations are constructed according to what their scholars believe is for them today, mm -hmm. uh, which is going to be different from what another denomination thinks should be for today. And so they're confused about salvation. They're confused about the second coming. They're confused about what the Bible is saying because really dispensationalism is the only way that your Bible hangs together 
without contradiction Mm -hmm. so that there are no contradictions. It all makes sense, and it's all put back in its context so that you see exactly what God is doing based upon what God is saying. Yeah, that's good. And now you mentioned some words that some of our listeners may or may not be familiar with, and I think it'd be worth us defining those before we move forward because they're going to keep coming up. One of those was uh, premillennialism, and um, and with that, pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, explain those two things, and why are they so relevant to the conversation about the historical belief in a, or a dispensational approach to the Bible? So Revelation chapter 20 says that we are headed for a 1,000-year, a millennium, a 1,000-year reign of Christ. So when mm-hmm. he comes back, he sets up a kingdom. That kingdom lasts for a 1,000 years. That is basically the seventh Uh, and final dispensation Mm -hmm. as you go through the Bible. So Revelation 20 says that, but you know, not everybody believes that. You know, we can talk about our our terminology being hard, but what I've discovered is that most Christians that get into these things at all, they're interested in prophecy at all. Uh, They are very acquainted with terminology uh, because they're accepting something other than a biblical view. So you can find the millennium in the Bible. And we can show that Christ comes back prior to, so it is pre-millennial. So we can show that from Scripture. Mm -hmm. But it is those who do not believe the Scripture that then have to invent their own terms, similar to uh, Calvinists, Reformed and Calvinistic theology. So they have TULIP, they have their acronym, and the you know the main word is okay. All the av- adjectives are incorrect, mm-hmm. and they just in, you know, they're covenants. They just invent them on their own. It's not that it is said in scripture that it is a covenant where their theology is concerned. Yeah. So similarly, you know if they get, if people get into this, well they know you know they're a preterist, they're a historicist, they're mm-hmm. they're whatever way to get out of seeing it as a literal millennium. Right. Right. And premillennial being, we believe the Bible shows Christ comes back qu- prior to setting up that millennial kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, pre-tribulation rapture would be Jew-Gentile church. Well, if the church is the body and the bride of Christ, then God's going to do the same thing we did prior to the first Gulf War. <laughs> so yeah. prior to the first Gulf War, we told all Americans, get out get out of Iraq, uh, those few that Saddam Hussein was holding as hostages, we, we, got them, we got them out Yeah. before we ever launched the attack and launched the war. So that they weren't exposed to the wrath. Exactly. Now, the church is the bride of Christ, so he's not going to let his bride go through any part of that mm-hmm. tribulation. Mm-hmm. Therefore, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, as Paul is very clear, we are caught away. We are caught up to be with Christ in the clouds because he does not come down to the earth at that point. We meet him in the air, and then there's a judgment seat of Christ for us in heaven. And then mm-hmm. there's a tribulation, Daniel's 70th week on earth, seven years on earth. And so the rapture of the church is pre-tribulation because we're the bride of Christ. He's going to get us out here before hostilities start. Yeah. Because definitely the tribulation is a time of hostilities. Mm-hmm. And he's dealing then with the Jew and the Gentile on earth right. uh, as they walk through that time. Yeah. 
that would be a common dispensational view, uh, the premillennial um, um, reign or, or, or coming of, of Christ to establish a kingdom, a pre-tribulation rapture where he harvests his people out uh, before the refining takes place, uh, before the trouble comes. Those are common views. Another common view that you mentioned that is is critical to a dispensational view of the Bible is that there is a distinction between Israel and the church, that they are not the same. Now, this is important because, um, obviously, and we'll come back to this, that in a covenant view or other views of the Bible, a conflation takes place. You have two things becoming one because um, it, as- it assists in a particular presupposition. Tell us about our distinction between Israel and the church and why that's so important to the way we see Israel today, but also the way our eschatology unfolds. Yeah, well, at the, at the bottom line, at the bedrock level, uh, our view of Israel and the church exists because of what the Bible says, and mm-hmm. we take it literally. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, we would say that that is also taking it scientifically mm-hmm. because we are actually mining the data from Scripture itself and we're letting it lead us where it wants us to go and we're accepting God's conclusions instead of our reasonings on it. Mm-hmm. However, we're in a minority, even among evangelicals with that, because every, every other group, whether it's Catholic, Charismatic, Church of Christ, Christian Church's Disciples of Christ, Covenant theologians, Reformed and Calvinist theologians, Charismatic, okay, all of those groups, all of those groups mean something totally different when they say, well, our view uh, looks at the Bible scientifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't be supernatural. So a text can never mean what a text never meant. Well, hold it. Even in your theology, Everything you're saying is that the text did not mean what it meant then because you are saying the church has superseded Israel. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yet you want to say that a text can never mean what a text never meant. Hello, somebody. That is so hypocritical Mm -hmm. because either the text meant what it said then and says now. Right. uh, Or it doesn't mean that you can make it mean anything you want to at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I accept the fact that it doesn't, you know, that a text sometimes mean what, means what it did not mean to the prophet himself because he didn't understand the dispensations. Right. So when Isaiah, uh, you know, talks about the suffering of Christ and the glory to follow, sure. he, doesn't, he doesn't divide between the two. That had, the division hadn't been revealed to him, only the truth of the total matter. It was a prophetic single point of data. Yes. But it is so hypocritical because none of them are really scientific. They use reasoning. So they make up their rules based on human reason. Then they apply that to to the Bible and say that that is what being scientific is. Mm-hmm. And so they come up with something totally different than what we you know come up with, and then they criticize us. Yeah. Uh, for what we've done, it just uh, you know it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't, and it's a and it's a fight that'll continue to kind of rage um, in the, in this background of evangelicalism, probably until until the rapture comes, then then it'll settle the whole thing. So let's talk about the opposing position because you know their their you know so so called scientific approach. Uh, results in a different view. So we say we just define premillennialism. We just pr- define pre-tribulation rapture. What are the opposing views? 
So um, what is, you know, just briefly, very, very briefly, you know, the amillennial or post-millennial view of, of um, the kingdom. Right. So if you're not going to take the Bible literally, if you're not going to accept what it says, then you have a couple of ways to get out of that. Either you can say there is no millennium, even though it says there, are, there is a millennium. Mm-hmm. And what I will do is I will take that uh, idea of those thousand years and I will make that a metaphor for something else. Yeah. I will make that a metaphor for church history as a whole. And I will make that, you know, things are getting better and better. And, right. you know, we will bring in the kingdom. And so it is amillennial. So Christendom is born out of that, where social justice, political action, Christian ideology yeah, yeah, to bring it in is 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 only making the kingdom on earth yeah better. and post millennial which is I mean the the they are two sides of the same coin yeah. in that same sense mm-hmm. that okay we will bring in the kingdom but then Jesus will come yeah so a millennial you know might even say you know they don't even necessarily accept the resurrection of Christ as historical and therefore, they're obviously not going to set, accept a literal millennium as taking place. Mm-hmm. Post-millennial will say that they believe the Bible and the inerrancy and you know, believe it on the same level we do, perhaps, mm-hmm. but that you know, once we get to the spot we should be as a church, then Christ will come back we'll be after acceptable. we have brought in the kingdom for them. Which is a common charismatic view. Yeah. yeah. So we've got on one side you have uh, kind of the cults and the unconvinced, mm-hmm. I will say, which would be liberal mainline Protestant theologians mm-hmm. that don't believe the Bible at all is a, is a um, uh, divine book at all. And don't accept it. And then you have on the other side those who would say they do: Catholic, Charismatic, Church of Christ, you know, uh, other other groups like that. So they will take more or less a post-millennial view mm-hmm. that will say we are doing this work. So for each denom, why are there so many denominations? Mm-hmm. Well, it's simple. It's because each one thinks they are bringing in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So their their denomination is that kingdom they are bringing it in, yeah, and this is how you're supposed to do it. And none of it matches up to anything historically except paganism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really interesting statement there, and I, I think that's a really w- great way of summarizing those positions. Directly related to that, and and where you stand with the millennium. Uh, impacts what you understand about the second advent and its relationship to a rapture or no rapture. Again, do you conflate the second advent and the rapture? Uh, This is also a problem for people of other uh, theological perspectives. Explain some of the other positions that people take on the rapture. And I will say that it affects more than just their view of those particular end-time events, because Mm -hmm. what I find is that since they do not have the the truth on their side, meaning they do not have the actual words of Scripture on their side, although it gets easier and easier for them to say that the message is on their side because they don't have the actual words of Scripture. So uh, you can, you know, it's kind of 
watered down, strung out, and oh yeah, what what I believe is right there. Yeah, yeah. They're, and a and lot of uh, versions are written. A lot of translations are made simply to uh, project Accommodate. those false ideas. Right. Uh, but and however, you know, I think it affects so much more because. First off, um, since they don't have the truth, they have to have a straw man. Mm -hmm. So first, anything we believe, they will straw man. So they will say, they will call us names that we are not, and they will say we believe things that we really don't, mm -hmm. uh, because they, they, you know, they have to be able to attack th these straw men. Secondly, it's just like the issue of church history and being a Baptist. Mm -hmm. Well, where did Baptists exist before Roger yeah. Smith? Right. You know, where did Baptists exist before the first group? Uh, they called themselves Baptists in England. Where did Baptists exist before what the reformers um, derogatorily called Anabaptists? Sure. You know, where were Baptists before all of that? And, you know, therefore, you know, Baptists is not, you know, obviously not an ancient and preferred denomination we are because we go all the way back to, and they mm -hmm. can trace their way all the way back. Um, so with regard to church history, it's just like what they, so it affects that mm -hmm. because just like what, how they view Baptists, uh, and, and, and then finally they just don't know how to rightly divide. And so it affects every, every other, so many other doctrines of scripture, so yeah. much you can get out of the Bible without contradiction. If you have your Bible rightly divided and if you don't, you have to make up covenants that are not there. Mm -hmm. You have to develop a plan of salvation that is not there. And yet it is consistent with pagan Rome and its religion and the imperial church that adopted all the trappings of that. And they all try to supersede Israel and its priesthood. Yeah. So they've got priests and they've got prophets, and they've got you know all of those things, and then you just end up with a mess um, mm -hmm. and don't even know where you're going. Right, right. You mentioned the term preterist, which will be familiar to some of the students in our Bible Institute, but maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with that. Um, a lot of people who don't hold to a distinction, uh, a clear distinction between the promises for Israel and the promises for the church age, right? When those things get mingled together and lost, it's really easy uh, for them to say that the historical view is that God um, reconciled the church and Israel in the first century. Explain the preterist view and why it's it's not well, accurate. Well, and so so those words more specifically refer to how are you going to interpret the Book of Revelation mm -hmm. uh, and certain other end time prophecies, Matthew twenty four, uh, you know, the Book of Daniel, right, right, right. Uh, Daniel chapter nine, um, those things that are predicted there. I mean, obviously, it's a prediction because they are prophecy, right. So you, so some things you just can't get out of, and it's a, a so if it is a prophecy, and you have to admit that it was literally fulfilled, mm -hmm. you want to be able to say, well, it was fulfilled in, um, you know, it was fulfilled the captivity. Yeah, yeah, it was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Yeah, 
and it was fulfilled uh, by uh, Roman General Titus uh, right. and his wrath on Jerusalem mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. Okay, and so then you've got a historicist view that says all of that was fulfilled somewhere in history. There's nothing else we're waiting for. Mm-hmm. We are. It is our job now to bring in the kingdom. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, and one of the things I hear to that point is some of the interpretations of Revelation is that that Revelation is just allegory for the turmoil that Rome put Jeru- Israel through in the first century, right? So, so then now Revelation is not a prophetic book. It's just John's way of talking about what he was going through and what Israel was going through under the captivity of Rome. Yeah, and so now, um, you know, it doesn't matter what... Revelation says, if you're saying that it was all fulfilled, you don't even have to tie it back to a specific event because obviously those things that is said happening are not fulfilled. Mm -hmm. There was not that event. That did not take place. And so you have to resort to saying, well, you know, but people at the time felt that way. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no evidence and that people at the time felt said that or felt that way or anything else. But, you know, in your mind, this poison's going through your mental system. And that's affected, you know, you're accepting this reasoning based on philosophy and inference um, and and just putting human reason at the top. I'm yeah. gonna be I'm right. gonna be the God. Right. And and I believe I can invent mentally a construct that will make sense out of this book. Yeah. Yeah. And so everybody has their chance to do that, and it's a free country, and they sell, they sell <laughs> that, lots of books. That's true. That's true. Um, now, let's, let's get back to kind of the subject at hand in terms of the history part. Tell us who John Nelson Darby is and why he is referred to as the godfather of dispensationalism. Why did he get coined with that, and, and why is that relevant to at least the historical conversation and some of these ideas? Yeah, and if you'll look at a lot of things in history, there will be kind of precursors to a certain individual when things really catch on. Mm-hmm. And then, boy, it flies from there. Yeah. So you had, you know, Little Richard, and you had, so yeah. you had all sorts of influences, and then boom, there's Elvis, and boom, there's the Beatles. Yeah. So there's John Barrington in 1725, and he's talking about the idea of dispensations and those dispensations, the various various methods, he calls it, of God being extraordinarily discovering himself to mankind over time. Mm-hmm. And those methods by which he has conveyed further knowledge to them that they could, um, could arrive at by the bare use of the natural powers he's given to them. In other words, meaning a common person with a common Bible. Mm-hmm. They don't have to know other things. The common person can discover this. And then actually, even after that, you had Isaac Watts. So Isaac Watts lived 1674 to 1748, and he did so much more than just write hymns, the hymns that we sang. I mean, he wrote, um, he put the entire book of Psalms to verse. Mm-hmm. So versification of the book of Psalms. And then he was also his, uh, you know, kind of his own Bible student of his own. Mm-hmm. And so he came up with that idea of um, the script, reading scripture unprejudiced alone um, without any human creeds, confessions, or systems, either ancient or modern, mm-hmm. and coming up with 
you know, what would be so dispensational getting, getting away ideas. from the presuppositions yeah, of yeah. religious theory. So these are the yeah. early influences of, of rock and roll, of yeah. dispensationalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Manuel de la Cunza, uh, 1731 to 1801, a Spanish Jesuit. But, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's actually doing something with the Bible. Edward Irving, and we are often yeah. also called Irvingites mm-hmm. as well as Darbyites. Again, straw men, they have to call us names. They have to caricature what we believe and then attack that, mm-hmm. as opposed to looking at the scriptures themselves and answering book, chapter, verse with other scriptures. Yeah, right. They can't do that. So, uh, so they go through and call us Irvingites and Darbyites, and um, you know, in the same way that groups were called Anabaptist and then Baptist down mm-hmm. through history. So Irving, uh, 1792 to 1834. So uh, particularly regarding the rapture, he had uh, influential ideas there. And then you get down to Darby, and Darby starts off as a very uh, erstwhile Anglican, and uh, then he's ferociously in the Brethren movement mm-hmm. because they are actually setting aside, so it's nonconformity, and they're setting aside the cathedrals for their chapels and their Bible chapels, and they're setting aside all of the uh, barnacles on the bottom of the boat of Anglicanism and getting down to the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. And that resonates with him. So he gets in with that group. And between uh, um, between him and Benjamin Newton, they were probably one of the key um, leaders in that founding time of the Brethren movement. And, uh, you know, he comes out kind of as the leading light from that and wrote an entire commentary on the Bible, a, what he called a synopsis of the Bible, in, I don't know, five or six volumes, mm. uh, which was simply a dispensational view uh, of the Bible and separating Jew, Gentile, and church, mm. and therefore understanding the Bible in its discrete divisions based upon that approach to the Scripture and how to interpret it and be able to take it all literally mm-hmm. and have it make sense and not violate anything anywhere else. Yeah. And okay, here's, here's what it comes up with. Yeah, yeah. Hi, this is Mark Schaefer with Living Faith Tampa in Tampa, Florida. What a privilege it is to be called a child of God. And yet too many Christians stop there and they miss their whole purpose for their salvation. Colossians chapter one says that you and I were alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works. And yet God reconciled us through his death so that he could present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That is an awesome privilege. And yet if that's all the Christian life was about, we would be in heaven right now. Colossians chapter one doesn't end with what God wants to do for you. Colossians chapter one ends with what God wants to do through you. You must, as verse 23 says, continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You and I were saved to minister. And if you're gonna minister rightly, you need preparation. The Living Faith Bible Institute exists for that purpose, to equip and to prepare able ministers of the gospel. None of us are worthy of salvation, and none of us are worthy to minister either, but this is the calling for every believer. Get prepared for your calling to warn every man, and to teach every man that you may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Enroll in classes today. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org.
To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org support. That is at the heartbeat of dispensationalism is to use the Bible in such a way where no one passage violates another, that they all can complement uh, each other. And so dispensationalism is really like uh, having all these puzzle pieces that you have to put together. The difference is we, we, we know that there's a final picture. Irenaeus knew that there was a final picture, but he only had one of the puzzle pieces. And so other men and students of the Word of God have been working to establish the, the puzzle based on Scripture alone without that outside influence uh, or presupposition. Yeah, and I think here's what's happened, and I think we forget because of the time in which we live, the day in which we live, everything is instantaneous. Mm -hmm. uh, if we want to know something today, we go ogle it, and we can <laughs> go ogle it, and it's right there in a moment's time. Not only that, but now there is AI who will give us more than just an answer. It, AI will lead us into new thoughts and mm -hmm. new things. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't understand anymore what took place historically at the time and also how slowly things moved. And I think if, you know, if we could draw on a, on, a, on a chart, on a timeline, if you were to start with... Um, what God started doing with the Reformation, and so the invention of the printing press, and that that technology was as revolutionary then as the iPhone was in yeah, sure. 2009, yeah. whatever the whatever year age. it came out yeah. with, yeah. So it was just revolution. It was it was like the computer coming out. It was like you know personal computers. So mm -hmm. it was because now it became something that involved the entire society. And so if you have a printing press, then they were in that uh, age of enlightenment in the, in the Renaissance. Um, they, they are uh, getting uh, into the Hebrew and into the Greek, and they are comparing what they have in order to put to press something that is received, standard, accepted, something they see as what God gave down through yeah. history. Right. So they're able to do that. Now, once you get the Hebrew and the Greek circulating among the professors and the scholars and those who knew those languages, well, then there's nothing to keep them from translating that into the mother tongue that they might have grown up with. Mm -hmm. And so translations start popping up, and really it's the Word of God that gives rise to the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And you get back to a pure gospel and a biblical view of things. Um, so it gives rise to that. Now you got the Reformation going on, and um, uh, so okay, so that that's 1500s, 1600s. Finally, you get a um, standard English translation in the King James. So I just taking English as an example. So now you've got a standard English translation, but it was another 200 years uh, because of the size. So now we have Scripture all in one place for the common person. Never in history until then could that be possible. Mm -hmm. Because until then, they had to go to their church, and Paul told Timothy, give attendance to reading. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they didn't have Bibles. Yeah, right. So the only place that had a Bible was the church itself. And it may or may not have a complete Bible yet, and so you obviously have a heritage of the 
scrolls from Judaism. Mm -hmm. So you've got that. But now as the New Testament books are getting circulated, finally all that gets together. Okay, so now you can put it all into one binding, a codex. So you got the New Testament all right there. Okay, so that's good. But again, common people didn't have that. And so as they make copies and copies, now in England, you've got Wycliffe saying, well, look, I want to get this into English. He does that, but they're all manuscripts. I mean, they're all manuscript copies. And so it's still extremely difficult for anyone except the upper classes to have a Bible in their own language. Now the printing press hits the scene. Now things are, you know, copies yeah. are coming out, translations being made, standardized into English. Okay, now the common family can have their own Bible, but that's as far as they got. And it takes someone as quirky, uh, I don't know, ascetic, uh, maybe autistic, yeah. as um, Thomas the Corrector, Cruden, as Cruden mm. to to read through, and I don't know how he did it. He kept on a sheet of paper every place a word or a phrase occurred, and then somehow prepare that for print. And now you've got a concordance. Yeah. So it took a little while, and so you got Cruden's concordance, and you got Strong's concordance, fine. And then you got uh, Young's analytical one because it'll go back to the Greek and Hebrew. Well. Praise the Lord. But that, but so now that takes a couple hundred years. Right. Now you're up to the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And it is not until that moment that if you actually want to do English Bible exegesis of a text that doesn't just consider its immediate context, but puts it into yeah. complete context with the rest of the Bible, it, it's not until then that you could do that. Right. So obviously, it is just now getting started at that time mm -hmm. that you have men like Darby, who Darby would say, I didn't get this idea from anybody else. I simply was reading Isaiah. And as I read Isaiah, I thought, huh, you know, I, how, does this, how does this meet up with that? How does this mesh with that? I mean, so he came to the scriptural and biblical view simply from the Bible that he had, the resources, the research tools that he had. Now, this is true science. This yeah. is biblical scholarship right, here. Right. They've got concordances that they can utilize and they can go to, and now they can begin to see how the Bible is put together, starting with a foundational King James version because its books end up being in dispensational order, mm -hmm. and they're they're kind of in those discrete packages. And you know, all the scholars today, since they don't believe that, then here use your human reason. Right. I want to talk to you about genre. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter the the you know it doesn't matter the books and the traditional way that any common person could look at them. Instead, it's like, well, you know, that's a certain genre. And in right. that genre, nothing was ever really meant literally. And, yeah. uh, you know, it only, you know, it never means what it never meant. And if it didn't mean that to them, and so they're all about authorial intent, original author, yeah. original hearers, what did they understand? And what they would call um, original manuscripts, although we don't have any, mm -hmm. 
Uh, and there was an original language, but the, it's kind of scrambled in that. So yep. if you're going to believe in preservation at all, you kind of shut up to one thing. But now you've got that one thing, you've got the tools, you can put it together. So that was exactly the time that Darby uh, and his ideas start flourishing because he's taken a biblical view of the yeah. Bible itself. Mm-hmm. And from there it took off to all of those believers in England with whom that way of interpreting the Bible resonated because they could do it. They could see it. Mm-hmm. They had they had concordances too. Yeah. The picture you're painting in terms of the way things have folded historically is that there's this progressive development as more and more people have access to the Word of God. There's a greater sense of feedback uh, people are conversing about and understanding uh, the Word of God in a way that they couldn't when it was isolated and or distant. And so have, you have men like Darby who find themselves in a position where they are establishing laws and rules and concepts that are derived exclusively from Scripture. But then you have another camp, the critical camp, the scholarly camp, that's beginning to be established that is pointing back to what can only be described as theoretical. So it's an abstraction is taking place on the heels of the, of the literalist. So the literalist is progressing, and the, the scholar, at, you know, as we get into the 20th century, is kind of pointing back to a more abstract, distant, and easier to manipulate uh, view of what Christianity should or shouldn't be. Yeah, and so the Word of God does the work, because the Spirit answers to the mm-hmm. Word. Mm-hmm. So once you have the Word of God going out in that fashion and being able to be studied in that way, then what did it produce? It did not produce scholarship on by the definition that we have today of who scholars are. Mm-hmm. What it produced was the international missionary movement. What it produced is pastors, churches, missionaries being sent out to the four corners of the globe. And regardless what they knew yet about end-time events, and even if they thought they might be bringing in a kingdom, they Mm -hmm. were nevertheless fulfilling the Great Commission, which is what we should be doing anyway. Mm -hmm. So the Spirit answers to the Word. It burdens these people, and it empowers them to go out with the gospel, with a pure gospel, and to go to the entire globe. So it, it, it fed the missions movement, Uh, of the 1800s and into the 1900s. And so all of the scholarship movement, so all of the other viewpoints, um, contrary to dispensationalism, they do not start with the Word of God doing the work and the Spirit answering to the Word. Instead, that all starts with men like Westcott and Hort, who were spiritists, mm-hmm. who were spiritists. That line continues directly down to today to men like N.T. Wright. Okay, So Tom Wright knows Hebrew, Greek, cognate languages, mm-hmm. so Ugaritic and you know, whatever, Coptic and whatever else. Right. Research languages, 
So he reads all of the scholars and all of their papers in German and French and the early church fathers. So patristics. Mm -hmm. He knows all of that. But you know what? Um, Tom Wright speaks in tongues. And Tom Wright has been prayed over, has been prophesied over by someone who said they had the gift of prophecy and he believed it. Hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. The fruit bears witness. The fruit, that is, that is what that produces. Yeah. And what they end up with then is something that um, in some senses, I will have to say, at least in some senses, is anti-Semitic. Hmm. But um, if not, even if not, the, even if they are not, you know, if, even if they are not yet the Nazi movement, yeah. uh, they are Friedrich Nietzsche. So they are the will to power. They are the, okay, so I'm taking that as a metaphor for the theological positions, some of whom will take it to the extreme mm -hmm. of being anti-Israel, anti-Zionist. Yeah. Right. I will say anti-Semitic, right. therefore. Um, but all of them start out at that level of, well, the church has superseded Israel, so what's that? Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that they're a nation means nothing. Everything God did right. to get them here means nothing. Right, right, right. What he brought them through in the Holocaust means nothing. The miracle of the creation of the state of Israel means nothing. Mm -hmm. There's no supernatural. God was not involved. Um, yeah. view, you've just got to view it as history. Um, and, you know, and yet at the same time, all the way from uh, spiritism to quirky, charismatic influence, um, it just doesn't make sense. When looking at the, the, this historically, again, to get back to that, this dispensational view has been called many different things throughout history before that term was ever coined or popularized. There are, you know, the ideas that dispensationalism is rooted in Christian Zionism, uh, that it's, that it's, uh, a, you know, a, a form of Christian apocalypticism is a, is the common term that people use. Guys like N.T. Wright use that phrase to describe dispensationalists. The truth is, these ideas have existed from the first century. Um, in Larry Crutchfield's book, Ages and Dispensations, he says the, the following, regardless of the number of economies to which the fathers held, the fact remains that they set forth what can only be considered a doctrine of ages and dispensations, which foreshadows dispensationalism as it is held today. Their views were certainly less well-defined and less sophisticated, but it is evident that the early fathers viewed God's dealings with his people in dispensational terms. In every major area of importance in the early church, one finds rudimentary features of dispensationalism that bear a striking re resemblance to the contemporary offspring. So maybe walk us back in time to those first couple of centuries uh, where these elements of premillennialism, pre-trib views were held, um, and and how we can see even among whom the, the who they want to point to, right? They want to point back to the patristics. Yeah, yeah. So if if it's okay, if I point out a couple of resources, please, yeah, which actually you turned me on to. Okay, now, I, I already had uh, uh, Watson's book, Dispensationalism Before Darby. Yeah. 
Uh, but as it says in the subtitle, it kind of focuses on uh, 16 and 1700s. Yeah. Um, and and the um, uh, rockers before Elvis. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, but there's another book here, uh, which you know, it's amazing that that this information does not occur on the scholarly level of seminaries and church history and and theology as it's presented there. So ancient dispensational truth, uh, subtitle refuting the myth that dispensationalism, uh, dispensationalism is new, James C. Morris. So he attempts to put in one book the actual references. So you have 38 volumes of, quote, the fathers. Right. And some of those are... So they divide those 38 vo volumes according to the Council of Nicaea, mm -hmm. 325 AD, the one that Constantine called. Right. Uh, there are a small number of uh, anti-Nicenes, so A-N-T-E, not A-N-T-I. It's mm -hmm. like an antebellum South, yeah. the pre-war South, pre-Civil right. War South. So pre-Nicaea uh, church fathers— uh, and then you've got those who wrote during the period of the Council of Nicaea, which was the big hairy deal because the emperor is now a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The emperor takes the name of Christianity. Right. Uh, put it there. He legalized. He makes it okay to be a <laughs> right. Christian. Right. Um, and then the, you have the uh, post-Nicene church. So anyway, it comes up to 38 volumes, apparently, of yeah. what we have in existence that has been translated in English that you can read today. He goes back to those anti-Nicene, so with Irenaeus, with yeah. uh, Tertullian. Well, actually, he, he goes all the way up to Augustine because... Augustine, before he was covenant and reformed, was ac actually premillennial. Mm -hmm. And then, for whatever reason, uh, he gave up all that and became an extreme critic of it. Uh, but, and however, even, even though he gave up uh, He had a that, moment in and, the sun. Yeah, even though he became a critic of it, he, st he still had to admit God's going to come back and the Jews are going to be saved. Yeah. You know, at the end, yeah. the Jews are going to be saved. Yeah. So there are the actual quotes in here. The uh, right. So I, I would recommend that. Now, having said that, um, let me say that I think that we have to be careful not falling into the uh, sewage pond uh, on this or to the drainage ditch, because on, on, on one hand, we've got the Bible. On the other hand, we've got to the, those immediate successors of the apostles like Irenaeus Tertullian. Yeah. Uh, and and of which there are is very sparse, but some. Mm -hmm. Then you have ten imperial persecutions, and church goes through a tunnel. There's a blackout. There's almost nothing preserved until you get to Constantine and the council. He calls it Nicaea. Well, by that time they'd killed all the true Christians or the ones who were still alive, m mostly. Uh, were willing to play according to his rules, which yeah. totally viewed the church in terms of succeeding Israel, and it is the new priesthood, and it has the new priests, and it is organized, however, the difference being it's a uh, organization of Israel's priesthood, not into tribes, but into the ancient Roman diocese, mm -hmm. and uh, dividing it up that way. Right. 
And so that happens under... So you, so you have a blackout and then a, revi right. and a revision. So you've got all of that. Now, I'd say we could almost do a total leap over that ditch so that we don't fall into it. And instead, here's where dispensationalism came from. It doesn't, doesn't, you know, it doesn't come from uh, Darby or Irving. or uh, the Dispensationalism came from the Bible. Therefore, the roots of what we teach dispensationally was in the Niagara Bible Conference, which ran every year from 1876 to 1897, mm -hmm. focused on Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, missions, and prophecy. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where it came from. It came from Evangelist D.L. Moody in 1880, establishing a series of summer conferences for Christian workers where he lived up in Northfield, Massachusetts. Now, that's before there is any revision of the King James Bible, which in England was in 1881, but in America was not until 1901. Um, then you've got African-American Bible conferences springing up in Georgia in 1902, and every one of them grows every year in attendance, in significance, uh, so in England, you've got, you know, John Nelson Darby and you've got B.W. Newton. Um, but in America in 1883, there is a book published by a Baptist pastor, J.R. Graves, entitled The Work of Christ Consummated in Seven Dispensations. Mm. I've got that book. Hmm. Uh, 1883. Um, after that, 1898, uh, G. Campbell Morgan transcribed the teaching he had done at Northfield for Moody and put it in a book called God's Methods with Man so that there would be a simple statement explaining dispensationalism. Uh, 1904, another Baptist pastor in actually First Baptist Church of New York City, I. M. Haldeman, very prominent pastor, he had Friday evening meetings, so in other words, a Friday night Bible study. Mm. And his book, How to Study the Bible, was born out of that. Mm. Uh, again, another book I have, great book, completely yeah. dispensational. I mean, that is where uh, everything we teach today or what you can find in Mark Trotter's 52 Weeks comes out of, comes out of those books and what, mm -hmm. what's written there. That is where it came. It came from common people getting in touch with a common Bible, yeah. doing simple English Bible exegesis, believing what it said, um, having it preached to them and responding to that message. And so then you end up 1909, Schofield Reference Bible, uh, published by uh, Oxford Press. Mm -hmm. so, so yes, you did have an original belief. Now, no less than Philip Schaff in his History of the Christian Church says, the mm -hmm. most striking point... Now, now, I'll have to unpack this. Okay, go ahead. The most striking point in the eschatology, that means the study of last things, mm -hmm. uh, of the anti- Nicene Age, in other words, prior to A.D. 325, yeah. is the prominent Chiliasm mm -hmm. or millenarianism. That is the belief in a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. Well, if that don't beat all, there's earth's earliest dispensationalist right there. Yeah. I mean, he sounds sounds kind of like William Buckley uh, in, in in the way that he words it. But uh, you know, eschatology study the last things, anti Nicene, so pre all the church fathers 
uh, or he says most prominently among the church fathers prior to AD 325, um, they are the closest to Christ. They are closest yeah. to the apostles. Schaff says the most striking point is their belief in pre-millennial truth um, that Christ's coming takes place before the millennium and we rule and reign with him. So before the end of the first mm-hmm. century, Clement of Rome expressing a belief in the early return of Christ. Yep. AD 100, the Didache, meaning the teaching of the 12 apostles, stressing the need for watchfulness yeah. in light of Christ's soon return. Irenaeus, disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, teaches that the Antichrist reign and the Great Tribulation is going to be followed by the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And the only opponents to that view were the early heretics, the proto-charismatics, and, and the Gnostics and, and others um, who did not believe that. So, yeah. so where does it start? Well, it starts in the Bible. Yeah. And you see that in the immediate, immediately following the generation of the apostles. But then there's a persecution. The aftermath of that persecution is that a lot of that truth was lost. They had to devise a different thing that would match the kingdom of their denomination. Mm-hmm. And then it's not until the Bible gets commonly distributed where the Word of God can do the work and the Spirit can answer to the Word, and now we've got tools to research it, and now people get together for conferences, and now they're letting it speak to them. Okay, that is the flourishing of dispensationalism. Alan, thank you. I think you just tied the bow on that. That, that, that's good, because that's what I wanted to get to. And, and I know that there's so much resource, and there is so much to sift through. And I know that you could get lost in the weeds, and I know it can't, you can fall into the, to the you know... Yeah, in the, the ditch. The ditch. But, but there is something to be said for the idea that, that disciples of the disciples were saying things akin to what students of the Bible on the other side of the Middle Ages yeah. were discovering about the Word of God. In other words, there's a fellowship of believers um, o- over the words, what the words actually say in the book. There's a fellowship in terms of the suffering and, and, and the shared martyrdom and persecutions. There is, a, there is a fellowship that exists in terms of the mission and the fruitfulness of believers uh, the the multiplication and the discipleship we we can see brothers and sisters early on believing and acting and, and seeing things that we see even now today yeah and they were saying that even before the research tools that we have now mm-hmm. well how much more is it incumbent upon us to take our Bibles to take the research tools the online concordances and other things to do the simple English Bible exegesis that gets us to God's truth and let the Spirit answer to the Word and work in our lives as well. Great. Alan, thank you. As always, it was, it was a wonderful time. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. And we want to thank you as well, the listener, for hanging out with us. 
and uh, hopefully you hung with us because that was, um, you know, very informative, a lot said. And this may be a topic that's fairly new to you. Like, like a lot of these definitions or terms may be fairly new to you. Uh, and so as a listener, we want to invite you to visit lfbi.org so that you can get a handle on God's word and you can establish a theology that's not only historic, but it's incredibly personal. Um, that what we're talking about is an approach to God's word that allows you to see God's truths, both doctrinally and devotionally. We're talking about a way of looking at the Bible that impacts you as a person. And so we want to invite you to come learn how to study God's word at the Living Faith Bible Institute. And in fact, you can take a course at LFBI uh, where Pastor Alan Shelby will teach you a dispensational theology. He will give you handles so that you can establish a systematic approach to God's word and that you can have the freedom to understand it and to divide it the way that believers have done over uh, history and throughout the church age. And so uh, come join us, uh, learn, uh, learn to be a minister and learn to be a student of the Bible. With all that said, we love you. We're grateful for you. And we can't wait to spend more time with you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.